the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Tiger Woods, Governor Cuomo out of New York, and then a fascinating article entitled, Still Baptist, Still Evangelical. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Happy Monday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined by nobody today. I am flying solo today. We will have uh, an interview in the second hour that I'm super excited for. An author by the name of Greg Coles uh, is going to be joining us for two segments. But other than that, I am uh, running by myself today. So we're glad to be together on a sunny Monday afternoon. Hope that you had a great weekend. And uh, looking forward to a great week. I know my family and I, we were able to spend some time uh, actually in the outdoors this weekend, which was uh, real pleasant. Went over to uh, Lyman Woods, which is kind of a uh, forest preserve area by where I live out here in Downers Grove, and uh, just walked. And it was just great because we're just not used to that right now. And to see the snow melting, actually see some grass uh, reemerging reminds you that spring is coming. Today is March the 1st. And so... Uh, I'm sure there's another snowstorm in us somewhere along the way here. But what you do know is as March, kind of the calendar changes, we can kind of see spring on the horizon. And soon enough, we'll be able to have some warmer weather, hopefully. And uh, and the snow and Arctic cold will be behind us. With that said, it's a little colder today. So anyway, I hope you had a great weekend. And uh, we are glad that you are with us today. I want to start this way. Today, speaking of spring, speaking of hope, uh, is one of the greatest days of the year, in my opinion. And you might ask why. It's not Christmas. It's not Easter. Valid point. It is the start, though, yesterday and today, of spring training baseball. Uh, I, I am a diehard New York Mets fan. I've shared that with you before. And uh, I was actually watching online a little bit this afternoon, their first game. And there's just something. There's just something about hearing the crack of the bat, seeing the sunshine, hearing baseball uh, that makes you feel like spring is here and summer is coming. Uh, and I just loved it today. My family and I, in a couple of weeks, we're, we're going to take a little vacation down to Arizona. And I was actually able to secure some tickets to the White Sox game, a White Sox spring training game, uh, which, you know, tickets are hard to come by. So very excited for that because we have not been in a stadium in what is it? Year? year and a half. And uh, it's going to just be really fun. Now, there are protocols where you're spaced out and wearing masks out in the Arizona heat. But okay, whatever. As long as I can watch baseball and sit outside, uh, it's going to be a glorious thing. And I saw over the weekend that uh, Chicago said that starting on opening day, there's going to be limited, but there will be fans at Wrigley and at U.S. Cellular. Uh, And so or what is it now? Guaranteed rate. Uh, and, and that's awesome. That's great. Moving back towards a little bit of normalcy as we head towards the spring and towards the summer. So, uh, really excited for that. And yeah, some, it might not be a big day for you, but opening day is the big day. When, when, when regular season baseball hits, that is like one of my highlights of the year. But the first day of spring training, just something about it where you can kind of 
take a deep breath, hear the crack of the bat. And, uh, and there's kind of this new page turning. So let's go Mets and uh, excited for baseball to be here. I did want to talk about just the, the thing that really caught my eye over the weekend. There was a lot of uh, good stuff out there this weekend, but the thing that caught my eye is where I want to start this week uh, today uh, from the weekend. Uh, and that's a continuation of the Tiger Woods story. Now, the Tiger Woods story, I believe it was last Tuesday, where during our show, I think, uh, I remember doing the show with Ashley Hare, and uh, I think it was Tuesday or Wednesday, and the bulletin came up over the TV that Tiger Woods had been involved in a really serious car accident. And now, uh, I'm a big golf fan, but you don't even need to be a golf fan to know Tiger Woods. He has had a he has kind of transcended golf and had a cultural impact. And and so everybody was waiting. Is he going to is he going to live? Is he going to be OK? Uh, and he has serious injuries to his legs, especially his right leg, uh, as you read as you read about it. But uh, but he is going to be OK. In fact, he's OK now. He's alert. He is um, talking. He is fine other than the reconstructive surgery that's need to happen, especially on his right leg. And now his, the prayers go out to, will he be able to walk okay again, let alone play golf? But uh, will he at least be able to even have a normal life? He's 45 years old. And so he's recovering from surgery to fix compound fractures in his leg and all that. And it's so just a really big deal. And I found myself, because I'm very similar age to Tiger Woods, and I just kind of have always been watching him because we're kind of the same age of just like, man, I can't believe this. And so this was the first golf tournament this weekend that took place since the Tiger Woods uh, accident. This was the uh, World Golf uh, World Golf Classic uh, or the WCG Workday Championship that took place. And here's what happened. And here's why I bring this up. Uh, a bunch of the golfers from Tony Finau to Rory McIlroy, Patrick Reed, Jason Day, Bryson DeChambeau, uh, Matt Kuchar, uh, they all wore a Tiger signature red. Tiger, if you know anything about golf, you know Tiger Woods on Sunday of a tournament, he wears a a red shirt and black pants. It's known as Tiger Red. And, and when Tiger's got the red on, it's kind of this mythology about him that like he's coming. He's going to put this tournament away or you don't want to see Tiger in his red kind of at the top of the leaderboard. Uh, and so as a honoring way to honor Tiger and to say, hey, we're thinking about you and remembering you, all these big golfers wore red uh, shirts and black pants. So they dressed like Tiger. And it was really touching to watch. I was watching the tournament yesterday uh, and it was uh, their grounds crew members in the red and black. All these people basically saying, hey, Tiger, we're thinking about you. We're praying for you. You're still a part of the brotherhood. You're out here on the course with us, if you will, in our thoughts and in our prayers. And it was really touching. And of course, to, to even show how touching it was Tiger Woods himself, who we haven't heard from. We've heard from his people. We've heard statements. But Tiger, Wood, t- Tiger Woods tweeted something. He was clearly watching the tournament. And Tiger Woods uh, made what or were his first comments since the devastating car crash of last week when he said this. He tweeted this, I should say, in reference to his fellow golfers wearing his signature Sunday outfit of red shirt and black pants. Tiger said, it is hard to explain how touching today was when I turned on the TV and saw all the red shirts. To every golfer and every fan, you are truly helping me through this tough time. 
And man, when I read that, I said, oh man, look, at this is somebody, Tiger, I'm sure he's scared. I'm sure he's down. I'm sure he's struggling as he lays there in a hospital bed. I'm, you know, I'm sure he also understands how lucky he is that, that it's just his legs, but, but this is his livelihood and his passion. And he's probably uncertain what's going to become of my career of the rest of my life. And he turns on the golf while laying in the hospital yesterday. And there he sees them honoring him in that way. And he says, it's hard to explain how touching that was to all of you. You're truly helping me through a tough time. And it, it really got me thinking a little bit about uh, what are the small gestures we can make to help people? In in the grand scheme of things, was it really that difficult for these guys to get on red shirts and black pants? Yet it made a huge difference to Tiger Woods. He said, this buoyed my spirits, basically, is what he said. You're truly helping me through a really difficult time. It was a reminder to me that sometimes we overcomplicate things. Uh, and we think that to help someone or encourage them or to be there from somebody, it needs to be this enormous gesture when in reality, sometimes it's little gestures that cause people to say, oh, he's thinking about me or she's thinking about me and they're for me. And, and if if all that did for Tiger yesterday was just put a smile on his face, then then good on all those guys for doing it. And so that's what stood out to me as I watched golf yesterday and I was uh, thinking about Tiger Woods and seeing these golfers do that. And then to wake up this morning and see Tiger's reaction to it about what it did for him, I think is a great reminder. Who is somebody uh, that may be struggling in your life right now whom you could do one small thing for? What is that thing? Go do it today. And uh, let's see what happens as we string together just small ways of encouraging people. Well, we're off and running today. First day of March. Sun is shining. Hopefully, uh, you're having a good day. We're glad to have you with us. Coming up next, I want to talk about a hard story, a difficult story out of the state of New York, and that's all about Governor Andrew Cuomo. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. I'm running solo today. Uh, we've been having some guests host over the past couple of weeks since Ian Simpkins stepped down. Ian is moving, I believe, tomorrow uh, down to Tennessee. Man, we're going to miss Ian, but excited to hear the stories. God has really opened up a door to a great church for him to go be a part of and work at called The Bridge down in the Nashville area. And so we're excited for Ian. But uh, as we kind of decide what's going to be next here at The Common Good, uh, we've been bringing in some guest hosts. So uh, I think we've done a couple shows, four shows now here with Aubrey Sampson. Ton of fun doing those shows with Aubrey. Uh, Steve Coble joined us uh, last week or the week before. Ashley Hare joined us. There'll be a couple more guest hosts, hopefully this week. Uh, and Aubrey's going to join us again at the end of the week. And so uh, when we've got news to share, obviously we will share it. But right now we're enjoying getting to talk to various different people. Uh, and, uh, today though, nobody joining me running solo all by myself today. And so, uh, glad to have you join us today. Well, there's a big story out of the state of New York, uh, and it has to do with governor Andrew Cuomo. Uh, and so let me give the background governor Andrew Cuomo. His dad was actually the governor, well-known governor of New York. When I was growing up in New Jersey, uh, that being governor Mario Cuomo, Mario Cuomo, uh, and uh, his brother, Chris Cuomo, is one of the main hosts on CNN in the evening time. Uh, but Governor Andrew Cuomo, uh, for many people, became the face of uh, of COVID, um, ha- how to lead well in COVID. 
Uh, he became the poster boy, especially for a lot of the news networks. You might remember early on in COVID, uh, it was Governor Andrew Cuomo uh, who uh, whose press conferences about daily briefings about COVID and COVID, um, how what they were doing in New York became uh, they ran them live every day on almost every cable news channel and all across. Andrew Cuomo even wrote a book about how to lead through uh, COVID and leadership lessons learned, which is uh, weird to me that in the midst of COVID, he wrote a book about it. But uh, Andrew Cuomo was being hailed as the leader of COVID. And especially a lot of people on the Democratic side were saying, see, this is a true leader while Donald Trump doesn't do what we think he should be doing. That's what a lot of people on the left said. A lot of people on the Democratic side of the aisle said. Uh, and in fact, you might remember Andrew Cuomo would be interviewed regularly by his brother on CNN, which a lot of media people said was was not proper. Uh, but it was like a love fest. In fact, uh, Andrew Cuomo started to become referred to as some, by some people as the love gov, as one to look to, as one who was doing this right. And uh, as we often do in our culture, especially people who wanted to tear down President Trump and how he was doing things, elevated Andrew Cuomo. People were talking about him running for president. People were saying this is a true leader. Well, things have started to crumble down around him. Uh, and this is what we read to this morning at NBC News. Cuomo apologizes for, quote, insensitive comments, turns over sexual harassment investigation to the attorney general's office. Top Democrats have called for an independent investigation into the multiple allegations of sexual misconduct against the governor. Let me give some more background with this. It says, faced with multiple allegations of sexual harassment, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo on Sunday apologized for comments that, quote, have been misinterpreted as an unwanted flirtation and following pressure from fellow Democrats agreed to refer the matter to the state gen attorney general's office. At work sometimes, he said, I think I'm being playful and make jokes that I think are funny. I mean no offense and only attempt to add some levity and banter to what is a very serious business. He goes on to apologize if this was seen as flirtation. Uh, but then there's other things that have been raised against him. Uh, last week, a deputy secretary for economic development and special advisor to Cuomo, Lindsay Boylan, uh, from she worked for him from 2015 to 2018, uh, said that Cuomo, quote, sexually harassed me for years. Uh, and it got really uncomfortable. Uh, Cuomo came out and said there's no truth to these claims. Uh, and so also, that's one major scandal. But then uh, as it comes to uh, COVID, you know, Cuomo, uh, he was again hailed as the one, the picture, the one to look at until it realized that there's a good chance that they were changing numbers. And it was Cuomo who sent a lot of sick patients back into nursing homes, which many people believe elevated the deaths early on in nursing homes. Uh, and so it Looks like it wasn't handled all that well, even though many people, Dr. Fauci included, pointed to, to Governor Cuomo and said he's the one that we should be looking to and at early on in the COVID-19 pandemic. So why do I bring this all up besides that it is uh, major news of the day? I would say this, because when I've been watching this story of Andrew Cuomo, you know, where this is a this is a. Uh, a show of uh, this is a Christian show. I'm a pastor. We like to relate these things to the church. Uh, when I've watched kind of the totality of Andrew, this Andrew Cuomo story, which still has a long way to go, but as I've looked at the totality of this Andrew Cuomo story, I couldn't help but be reminded of what we in the church have done with many celebrity Christians, particularly 
uh, very outspoken, well-spoken, powerful men in the megachurch movement or in the parachurch movement um, that that we have for years said, ah, you know, I don't know. It seems like things are a little off, but look at the size of their church. Look how dynamic he is as a speaker. Look at the money he's raised. Look at the people who follow him. Look at the books that he has written and so on and so forth. And so we often painting with a broad brush here, but what we've seen in a lot of these stories that we've been doing over the two plus years of this show is that a lot of times when these major falls happen, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this from an article later in the hour, uh, but what happens when these falls happen and we, we feign surprise, but then when we actually look at the character of the person that we've been holding up on a pedestal, we go, yeah, okay, it actually wasn't that shocking. And my point being, in too often in the church, we value, we have begun to value celebrity, charisma, uh, presence above character and integrity uh, and war- things that the Bible holds up as what should be the most important things in a leader. And I can't help but see the parallels here that Andrew Cuomo, uh, I, I think that uh, I, I think people have seen this coming a little bit. If you start reading the stories that there were a lot of things that just weren't talked about, that were whispered about, where now people are coming out of the woodwork going, yeah, I kind of saw this. And now he's fighting for his political life. I just I know some of you might think I'm making a stretch, but I, I can't help but see uh, the uh, the similarities to many, many of the church stories and the parachurch stories that we have talked about. James McDonald, Ravi Zacharias, Bill Hybels, whoever else it might be. And it's yet another reminder for us in the church world that we can't act the way uh, that our culture acts, whether it be in politics or whatever, but that we need to First and foremost, above presence, above charisma, uh, above all of that stuff, magnetism, we must value character and we must value integrity. And where there is not character and where there is not integrity in the church or in the in the evangelical world, those people should not be leading no matter the consequences. And so that's what came to mind as I've read this Andrew Cuomo story. Keep up on it. Uh, I think there's many more twists and turns to come. But it's, again, yet another example of what happens when we uh, when we elevate somebody on a pedestal. Uh, Humans were never meant to be on a pedestal uh, and often and inevitably a big fall happens. Well. Uh, love to know you what you think. You can do that Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Common Good Talk. Coming up next, someone who's been on the show before, Karen Swallow Pryor, wrote, this is going on, uh, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, a fascinating article entitled, Still Baptist, Still Evangelical. We're going to talk about that article from Karen Swallow Pryor next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today on a beautiful Monday afternoon. I'm looking out the window right now, blue skies, hardly a cloud in the sky. As I said in the first segment of the hour, uh, spring training for my favorite baseball team happened today. I can see some grass starting to come out from under the snow around us. Feels like some hope, doesn't it? Feels like uh, spring is coming. It is March the 1st, which if you are, remember from last year, we're like a week away uh, from it being a year to when everything shut down. I just cannot believe that. I, do you remember 
uh, when things shut down last year, like March 8th, March 10th, whatever it was be, whatever it was, I think our last Sunday, uh, if normal church last year was March the 8th before things got crazy. If you remember back to then, uh, we were talking like, I don't know, maybe things will be shut down for a month. Maybe I'll never forget getting a month in and telling our church staff, guys, we have to be ready. Like this might go till July. This might go till June. And now here we are into March of 2021 and schools are still kind of open, kind of not. Churches are kind of open, kind of not. And uh, it's it's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. And so um, hopefully we continue to see good strides, right? Vaccines. We're going to talk about vaccines later, but more and more, it seems like the vaccines are going to get out there more and more quickly so that it can happen more quickly. Things will start reopening. Numbers hopefully will continue to go down. Still be vigilant. We still got some work to do, but hopefully just like spring kind of tells us, hey, there's kind of hope coming, new life coming. Hopefully these kind of the trends of COVID-19 kind of says, hey, I can see even more the light at the end of that tunnel. And uh, we can celebrate that coming up. Well, Karen Swallow Pryor, uh, is somebody that we have had on this show a couple times, just a fascinating author, uh, tons of writing that she does. I can't encourage you enough to follow her on social media, like on Twitter, Karen Swallow Pryor. She wrote something that I thought was really uh, important the other day. So I just want to read some of it. Uh, and it's entitled this. It's at Religion News. It's entitled Still Baptist, Still Evangelical. My childhood church has come to mind a lot lately, she said, perhaps because these days in church life have so dismayed and disoriented me. So she's kind of writing about all that's gone on in in her beloved uh, Baptist churches, uh, but also evangelicalism as a whole over the past months and years. And she's saying, you know what? Despite everything, still Baptist she is and still evangelical. She writes, the Baptist church I attended with my family as a girl in the middle of nowhere, Maine, was a one-room affair. The old clabbered uh, building had no running water, and until we raised enough funds for an addition, no bathroom but the outhouse at the back corner. A tiny vestibule opened into an airy sanctuary filled to the brim with three sections of white wooden pews. Two side aisles led to the platform uh, in front of a rustic maple communion table. As a young girl, I spent many a Sunday service fretting about being married in that church someday. Uh, how could I get married in a church with no aisle? Our pastor Vern was a big man. His presence flowed off the platform all the way down. So she's describing her church. She says, does this all ring nostalgic? Perhaps so. But I paint this picture, uh, not out of some Thomas Kincaid kink, but rather in an attempt to explain why I'm still here, still in the church, still part of the bride, even if the reality in the church hasn't quite met up to my youthful idealism. She says, far from it. In fact, consider, for example, the countless instances of sexual abuse and cover-ups by pastors that have taken place not only across denominations, but particularly my own Southern Baptist conventions. Uh, Numerous leaders, she says, have been removed because of moral failings. This is not merely headline news. It was deeply and personally devastated. I was personally and deeply devastated to invest decades of my life in a Christian institution only to discover it was led by a man leading a double life of sexual perversion and self-dealing. This betrayal merely compounded my bewilderment over the years. Uh, And she says the relativism and rejection of absolutes I was warned to resist in the church have come to the church and nothing prepared me for this. And yet I am part of this. I have wept these past days, weeks and months. 
Yet Jesus' invitation still still stands. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, for I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble, and you will find rest for your souls. Over the past few years, she writes, in the midst of the turmoil the church and the country are enduring, I've received countless messages of pain and lament from fellow evangelicals asking me what to do, where to go, where to, whether to stay in the church or to leave. She says, I understand many have been hurt or betrayed by the institutional church. And while my wounds are not as deep as those of so many, I now count myself among them. But one thing I do know to say is this, the bride of Christ needs you. Don't abandon her to those who exploit and abuse her. Christ loves his bride too much for us to let her go. My childhood church has come to mind a lot lately, she says, perhaps because these days in church life has so dismayed and disoriented me. Uh, I see now below the surface level worry was something deeper, she says, a young, innocent and earnest believer who simply couldn't imagine a future apart from her church. I still can't, she says, but I know better now what the future looks like what it means to be a part of the church, not merely a daydreamer in the pew. I realize while churches are led by fallen humans, Christ is the true shepherd, my real groom. Yes, the bride of Christ, the church is seared, spotted, smudged, and smeared. Yet even so, the gentle and humble can still be found there. Let me pause there because she writes so beautifully. She's going to get back into talking about her own church uh, but I, I so resonated with this because one of the struggles of doing a show like this is you see the warts of the kind of greater church. And we all know they're there, but sometimes they're just overwhelming. And you're like, man, how many more stories of abuse are we going to have to do? How many more stories of power? How many more stories of moral failings? How many more stories of uh, whatever else it might be are we going to need to do and endure? And then you look at your own church and your own life and the people around you and you're going, man, are, 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 is the church going to make it? Not, not my church or your church, but the church, right? Like it's, it's taken a lot of hits. And it's, it's articles like this and people like Karen Swallow Pryor that, that reminds me and gives me hope to go, okay, the church is the bride of Christ. Uh, Jesus said that, that the gates of hell will not overcome it. Jesus is still at work. And just because that there are bad people out there, uh, there are people who are, um, hurting the reputation of the church doesn't mean the church is going to go away. She says the gentle and humble can still be found like her pastor, Pastor Vern. And like countless other pastors and missionaries, teachers and servants who spend hidden lives of no name or repute, toiling for God's kingdom in the middle of nowhere, day in and day out, who preach the word on Sunday and deliver the mail Monday through Saturday, who drive long country miles to bring meals to the sick and lonely, who cut out construction paper hearts for toddlers, who pour over obscure footnotes in search of deeper understanding, who provide shoulders to cry on, cries of confession for those who've gone astray. Tears of torment for those who've been abused, who don't headline conferences or sell books, who love because they were first loved. The eyes of these are on the coming perfection, the future glory, she writes, the feast that is still being prepared from either side or maybe the middle. They walk down the aisles because they see only the groom. They are moving toward him, their feet firmly placed on this present ground, gently tapping out his time. Just a beautifully written reminder by Karen Swallow Pryor that there's there's kind of this movement and I get it to some level but it's almost glorified this deconstruction that says oh I'm I'm going to deconstruct my faith I'm going to reject my parents faith I'm going to reject the church and there's almost like this we're going to hold up those who reject and I don't think there's I understand why it happens but I don't think 
those are the people that should be held up. I think it's the people that she's talking about here. These pastors who have toiled in, in obscurity, but who continue to remain faithful. The people who continue to love on the kids and, and others in their churches. The people who continue to remain faithful to the gospel. And it's for those reasons that we stay engaged in the church. That doesn't mean that we pretend there's no problems. In fact, that we fight to make things right and to bring up what's wrong and to shine a light on the darkness. But we don't lose faith that God is still at work in his church. I hope that you're encouraged as much by that as I was, uh, because sometimes I just need to hear that. A wonderful article there from Karen Swallow Pryor. Well, coming up next, I'm going to talk again uh, an article out of the Christian Post about the modern evangelical church. This author says the modern evangelical church is sick, uh, and he's going to highlight something that he thinks that we need to change. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo today on a beautiful Monday afternoon. Hope you're having a great day. Before we jump into this next article, did you see McDonald's made news this week? McDonald's joins the fierce fight for chicken sandwich supremacy. Uh, This is at the New York Times. Fast food chains like Chick-fil-A and Popeye's have been vying for chicken supremacy, capitalizing on the sandwich's popularity with customers. And now on Wednesday, this past Wednesday, McDonald's is releasing three versions of its crispy chicken sandwich, original, spicy and deluxe. Uh, It says McDonald's knows burgers, but now they're trying to get into the chicken sandwich wars uh, for my money. Uh, I wonder which one most people out there like. For my money, uh, I enjoy a good Chick-fil-A sandwich. Uh, in my household, we refer to it as Jesus Chicken and uh, enjoy a good Chick-fil-A sandwich. But we'll be interesting. McDonald's, when they come, they come. Uh, to, they come big usually. And so uh, here comes McDonald's kind of trying to up their chicken sandwich game to kind of get in where Chick-fil-A uh, and others have gotten. Do you know Chick-fil-A posted sales of $11 billion dollars? in 2019. That's unbelievable. Basically serving chicken, $11 billion in 2019. Now that was dwarfed by McDonald's 40 billion uh, in that same year. Uh, But the average Chick-fil-A franchise around the country averaged more than $4.5 million in sales in 2019, well above the average sales of $2.9 million for the nearly 14,000 McDonald's restaurants in the United States. And remember, Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday. And so McDonald's says, hey, maybe we can get into that one. I doubt they're going to close on Sundays. But coming out with the chicks, Chick-fil-A, kind of getting onto Chick-fil-A's lawn there and saying, we're coming at you with a sandwich. Uh, with chicken sandwich, uh, it'll be interesting. Hey, more good chicken sandwiches, the better. That's what I always say. So, all right. At the Christian Post, this is written by Darvin Wallace, an op-ed contributor. Uh, Darvin Wallace wrote this. The modern evangelical church is sick. Here's where it fell apart. And I understand some of you might be out there being like, why do we just keep doing stories uh, about what's wrong with the church. Because I do think that that's part of our role here is to just put stuff in front of all of us and just go, we got to do better at this. Let's do better at this. I have a heart for the church. And when Ian was here, we talked about that all the time. He's moving, right, to go to a church. He's uh, He has a heart for the church. Many of the guest hosts we've had on, we've all had, we've got heart for the church. And part of what it means to have a heart for the church is say, and I want the church to be better. I'm not going to discard the church. That's what we talked about last uh, last segment. Uh, I'm not going to run away, but but I have a heart for the church and want to see it flourish. 
Uh, and so sometimes to get to flourishing, you have to say, but here's the problems with it. Uh, here's what's wrong. Let's diagnose the sickness, as he says here, Darwin Wallace says, uh, so that we could come up with a solution. So he writes this. It was a simple sign on a slow Monday morning. I was walking into the mega church I was working at, fumbling with my coffee. There in the doorway was a sign that began to reshape how I viewed the church. The sign was a promotion for a church leadership conference. It is a slight miracle. I even saw the sign as a pastor. I've attended so many conferences like this that I barely even noticed them. Like all the conference signs, this one was plastered in rows of pictures of celebrity speakers. One picture made me pause. What stopped me was not just that someone who was not a Christian was a keynote speaker. It was that this person had been fighting a public battle against Christian values. I stood there staring at the sign for an awkward amount of time. In my meetings that day, I brought up the sign only to find no one shared my apprehension. In fact, one coworker chastised me for being concerned. On my way out of work that day, I stopped in front of the sign again. My view of Christian leadership has been forever changed since the, since that moment. He said there are only about uh, 1,500 megachurches in the United States today, meaning there are only about 1,500 pastors of megachurches, yet somehow it seems that every week we hear of a new failure. And he's going to go on and talk about this, um, about these failures. He says there's something structurally sick going on in the modern evangelical church. Evangelicalism is having a crisis in leadership, and the whole world is watching. But why, he asked. There's the question. But why? Why are so many of these pastors failing? Strangely, I've come to see that simple sign as a perfect summary of why Christian leaders are morally failing out of the ministry at a continuous rate. Man, this is a good article. It's really long, so you're going to need to go read this at our Facebook page. Uh, Going on, talking about church leadership conferences. He says, there's something intoxicating about seeing the speakers getting autographs. This sent me on a path of pursuing this form of Christian leadership for years. I read dozens of Christian leadership books. I began to listen to podcasts. It is likely that very few churchgoers are aware of the Christian leadership industry that's arisen within evangelicalism over the last three decades. While seminary prepares pastors for scholarship, we graduate with no, with nearly no knowledge of how practically to lead a church. This is where the podcast books and conferences come in. And he says, uh, it is clear that our church leadership culture is being shaped. And here's what he says is the problem by corporate America. He says, over the last three decades, evangelicalism has experienced a dramatic shift in leadership norms, the direct link between evangelical leadership practices and corporate America. The Global Leadership Summit, founded by Willow Creek in 1995, among the 2019 keynote speakers, only two were pastors, six were corporate CEOs and entrepreneurs. Uh, at one 2020 leader cast conference, there were four corporate personalities and one pastor. And they go on to list how this goes. And uh, that's not to say, that Christian leaders have nothing to learn from non-Christian leadership. I will be the first to say that. We we certainly do. Uh, but it, it begs the question here that we need to wrestle with. Are we hiring corporate experts to teach our pastors how to lead churches? And the Christian leadership industry has intentionally embraced the corporate business paradigms as the primary norms of leadership. And that's the question. Uh, is our, are our churches in this kind of leadership uh, kind of obsession right now. Are they more biblical or, or are they more corporate? And that is, again, not to say that corporate America doesn't have a ton that they can teach pastors, but are we doing that alongside 
what the Bible talks about leadership? Are we doing it in lieu of what the Bible says? Are we doing it underneath what the Bible tells us about leadership? Is that our primary voice that we want our pastors hearing? Corporate America talks, you know, a lot about numbers and getting, you know, figuring out your vision and getting there no matter what, being ruthless about your vision. Very bottom line, what it, it has very um, specific metrics about what is success. And I would be, we'd be hard pressed not to realize that a lot of times those metrics run contrary to what the Bible talks about leadership success looking like. Like do our, do our elder boards and our leadership councils or whatever else you call them look more like uh, corporate boardrooms? Do they more look like board of directors? Or do they look like kind of the biblical model of eldering? And, and that is what this is, this article is really about. He says the sad confusion about the corporate leadership paradigm uh, invading the church is this. We already had better leadership paradigms, paradigms that stand in contradiction to what we find in corporate America. But today our church system actually degrades the service of leaders. It doesn't elevate servant leadership, but oftentimes we degrade them. We put it down and the lead pastor needs to look like a CEO more than a shepherd. And we wonder why our churches are having some of their issues. I think this is a super important article and one that I just want to uh, leave out there. He says, I still have the image of that poster in my mind, the poster that began to change how I saw Christian leadership in the crisis in evangelicalism. The, co- the poster convinced me that the church had rejected Jesus's leadership paradigm and accepted a corporate one. It is an image that reminds me that as a pastor, I'm not a CEO. I'm not a celebrity. I'm not a corporate executive. I am a servant. Got this up on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram page at Common Good Talk. Super important article and concept here at the Christian Post. I'd encourage you to read it. Well, first hour in the books. Coming up next, we're going to talk about vaccines uh, and then be joined for two segments by Greg Coles. Uh, He is the author of a new book that we're going to discuss called No Longer Strangers, Finding Belonging in a World of Alienation. That's coming up next here on the Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Russell Moore's view on the COVID-19 vaccine. And then we're joined for two segments by Greg Coles, the author of a new book, No Longer Strangers, Finding Belonging in a World of Alienation. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you with us today as I fly solo on this Monday afternoon. Uh, Like I said, we will have some guest hosts throughout the week as we continue to figure out what will be next here uh, for The Common Good. But most of all, we, we love you guys and are grateful for our listeners and the time that you give us. Well, uh, as you know, we are like a year uh, into the throes of the COVID-19, the coronavirus pandemic. This time last year, we barely knew what the coronavirus was. We barely knew a lot of us, I should say, some of you knew very well, but a lot of us barely knew what COVID-19 was. And most, I would say all of us never once thought that we, that 2020 into 2021 could have been so affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, praying for those of you out there who have had deaths in your family or ma- major health issues. But even if you haven't, it's just been it's been a, a a unprecedented is the word everybody uses, but it's just rocked everything uh, about who we are. Uh, and, and 
the light at the end of the tunnel that is coming, I think that we all feel it coming as numbers go down and other things go down, is being driven in many ways by the COVID-19 vaccine. But as with everything in our culture, uh, there's a lot of debate and strong feelings around the COVID-19 uh, vaccine. Some of you out there have probably already gotten it. Congratulations. Others of us are waiting. Uh, hopefully this new Johnson and Johnson vaccine will will even now that we add a third vaccine along with Moderna and Pfizer, it will add kind of uh, it will even um, move more quickly the way that all of us can get the vaccine. I hear a lot of a lot of uh, really smart people in the know kind of talk about June being the time where hopefully everybody will have had an opportunity to get the vaccine. Uh, but maybe I'll even be quicker now that the Johnson and Johnson one is online. And uh, with that said, uh, lots of debate. Should I get the vaccine? Should I not? Uh, all these kinds of questions. And so I thought this was an interesting article, the Christian headlines. Uh, it's entitled this. Christians should embrace COVID-19 vaccines out of, quote, love for neighbor, say Russell Moore and Walter Kim. Two well-known evangelical leaders are encouraging Christians to reject conspiracy theories and to embrace the COVID-19 vaccine, calling it, quote, consistent with a pro-life ethic and an example of God's common grace. Russell Moore and Walter Kim, in a column they co-wrote for The Washington Post, address some evangelicals' hesitancy to receive the vaccine. Moore is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, while Kim is the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. The quote goes like this. The vaccines are a cause for Christians to rejoice and give glory to God, they wrote. The Bible, after all, speaks of medicine as a common grace discovered by human beings, but given by God. The Apostle Paul prescribed wine for Timothy's stomach ailments in 1 Timothy 5, probably recognizing the disinfecting properties of wine and settling the stomach and preventing dysentery. Vaccination, likewise, is a preventative measure, except that in this case, the prevention is not simply for the one taking the vaccine, but for the entire community. By getting vaccinated, they assert, Christians can actively work for what, uh, for what we have been praying for. Churches filled with people, hugs in the foyer, and singing loudly together the hymns that we love. Moore and Kim address concerns some evangelicals have about the vaccine. The vaccines, they wrote, were not made through cells from abortions. Although they did not mention any specific vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines have been labeled ethically uncontroversial by the pro-life Charlotte Lozier Institute. We agree with Pope Francis, Moore and Kim wrote and leading bioethicists from across the religious spectrum, that the use of these vaccines is not only consistent with a pro-life ethic, but it is itself a recognition of the value of protecting life, especially that of vulnerable elderly and those with compromised immune systems. The two leaders also pushed back on conspiracy theories, and I want us to hear this. They said, some have found on their social media feeds or their email inboxes articles by anti-vaccine activists making wild and unsubstantiated claims about the dangers of the coronavirus pandemic. Others have seen bizarre claims such as that Bill Gates is seeking to implant microchips of the book of Revelation's Mark of the Beast into our bloodstream. Uh, these conspiracy theories, however, are not rooted in reality, they wrote. Indeed, many of them come from the same sources that previously told us that the coronavirus itself was a host, hoax or even worse, a pandemic mapped out by the government for some purpose or another. Getting vaccinated, they argue, is an example of loving your neighbor. And we'll end here. They said, 
we can express our love for neighbor, especially the sick and elderly, by reducing the chance that we might inadvertently pass along a virus that could kill them. The men on the rooftop took a risk of, at best, looking like fools or, at worst, falling through an unstable roof, but they loved their friend and wanted to get him to Jesus. We don't need to make ropes or tear open roof tiles to love our friends and neighbors. Uh, all we are asked to do is get a shot. So some of you are vehemently against what I just read there from Walter Kim and uh, Russell Moore. Uh, that is their their take that that the conspiracy theories are unfounded, that uh, that the vaccine is safe and it is pro-life compatible, if you will. But also that it not only protects you, but you might remember the very beginning of our shows when we were talking about the coronavirus pandemic, we've hung this whole year on what does it look like to love your neighbor? And Russell Moore and Walter Kim want to argue that one way to love your neighbor is to get vaccinated. It is to get the shot so that you are less likely to pass on this disease unknowingly to others. So it's a protection to yourself and it is a way to protect and love other people. And so they want to push back on the conspiracy theories. And I agree. I, I think there are reasons to have be cautious about this vaccine. I don't think that that's wrong, but when it's rooted in these conspiracy theories, I believe of the government's trying to control us. Bill Gates is doing X, Y, or Z or whatever else it might be. That is not helpful when it's rooted in science and people going, you know what? I, I'm unsure. I would wish there was more testing. I'd love to see more data. I think that's completely legitimate. But I tend to land on the side of Russell Moore here, Walter Kim. There's another article here by Albert Moeller endorsing the vaccines who are saying, hey, uh, there's there's a lot of good data out there. This is going to help us get back into church, back into school, back into normal life. And it's also going to protect your neighbor. So here's my question. Do you agree? Do you think that they're right? Or are you going, nope, government conspiracy or no, the science is bad or whatever else it might be. I'd love to know what you think. Uh, and if you have been vaccinated, what's what's it gone? What's it been like for you? Uh, we put these things up at our Facebook, Instagram and Twitter page at Common Good Talk. Big, big discussion going on right now around vaccines. Well, coming up next for the next two segments, Greg Coles, uh, author of No Longer Strangers, Finding Belonging in a World of Alienation. Greg Coles is going to join us next here on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you with us on a Monday afternoon. Hope that you're doing well. And we are thrilled to be joined for the next two segments by the author of a book that just came out last week entitled No Longer Strangers, Finding Belonging in a World of Alienation. That is Greg Coles. Greg, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. Hey, before we jump into the book, uh, could you just introduce yourself to our audience however you want to and let them get to know you a little bit, let them uh, get to know who you are? Sure. In a nutshell, I was born in upstate New York, grew up in Indonesia, came back to the States for college, worked for a church for a year, went to grad school to get a PhD in rhetorical theory. Uh, and now I work at a different church. I'm a part-time worship leader. I do some writing, some speaking. And for a period of time, I worked part-time at a bakery where I once made 301 pounds of buttercream icing in a single day. 
So of everything you just listed from your bio, that's it. You 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 buried the lead. <laughs> that was it right there. Three hundred and one pounds. That's unbelievable. Oh man. So again, you've got a new book out called No Longer Strangers: Finding Belonging in a World of Alienation. And what an important book. What an important book and an important topic. I would just like to start kind of big picture. Kind of why'd you write the book? What what drove you to want to write particularly about this topic? I think after my after I wrote my first book, uh, which we can talk about later if you want, but sure. I, it, I began having conversations with folks uh, who who were wrestling with questions related to uh, their singleness, related to their feelings of alienation in the context of their church communities, uh, and I began to realize that not only could I resonate with them on the on the the concerns that they felt about singleness and about alienation from church but also that my own experience of national identity as somebody who grew up overseas had been variously fraught. And and I started to realize, I think even though I've spent my entire life feeling like an outsider in various ways, and I assumed that everybody else felt perfectly normal, (laughs) I think actually more people feel like an outsider than I have given them credit for. I think more and more I'm talking to people who I assumed must feel like they fit, and they would then confirm to me, no, I actually too feel this sense like I don't really belong in the world. Uh, that's, that's absolutely true. This uh, this concept of alienation, uh, I think we obviously we all get it, but but I think there's probably a depth to it that I would love for you to unpack. What's it look like when we feel alienated, or or kind of your description of a world of alienation? Unpack that word for me a little bit. I think for me, it has been a sense that everybody else is in on something that I am not in mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or a sense that uh, there's there's a shared understanding of what we all should be doing, what we all know to be true, and I feel like I'm not sure I'm convinced of it, or I'm not I'm not sure that I feel settled in the same way that other people feel settled. Um, for me, I think it, it often goes back to uh, maybe the sense that there's there's something hardwired within me, and I think within humankind in general, there's something hardwired within us to feel a little bit homesick maybe for the Garden of Eden or perhaps homesick for our future home in eternity. Um, a sense that anywhere that we plant our feet on earth will always be in some ways temporary, uh, that all the addresses we have here on earth are only temporary addresses. Yeah, yeah. As somebody who grew up, like you described, in Indonesia, on the other side of the world, like, you know, I grew up in New Jersey and now live in the Chicagoland. And even that distance, sometimes I'm like, where's home? Just kind of longing for where you grew up. What's it like to be having grown up on the other side of the world and now live in the United States? What is that like? And how does that play into that sense of alienation? When I was growing up, I remember always feeling like whichever nation I was in at the time felt real and the other one felt almost like a like a fantasy world. Mm. Um, uh, and, and so the, the most the most daily uh, normal parts of my life would just be fundamentally different depending on where I was. You know, did the butter come in sticks or did we eat margarine out of tubs? Um, <laughs> did we buy our milk? Uh, in, in nice gallon plastic jugs that had percentile names stuck onto them? Or did we buy our milk unhomogenized and unpasteurized out of plastic bag and the cretin clung to the bag? Um, there, there was just this sense that, uh, life felt so fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was a thing that I think really scared me about growing up because I, I had an expectation that I would eventually probably come back to the States for college. Um, but that thought, 
felt to me like the end of life as I knew it. You know, I, if I move back to, to the fantasy land America, I, I think my, my world is over. Um, and so one of the things that has been really encouraging for me, uh, first in that move and then in the subsequent moves that I've made to different parts of the United States, to different communities, uh, is to recognize the ways in which, even though my life often changes in really sig- significant ways, uh, at the same time, uh, g- God remains a wonderful, consistent through line through those things. And even mm. though the gifts he gives in each season might be different, he's still in the business of giving the gifts that we need in order to have the kind of life that he's called us to have. Oh, that's really good. So uh, thinking about what causes alienation for us, uh, what role do you think, if any, uh, kind of social media plays? Because uh, my old co-host and I, we would talk a lot about what social media is doing to us as the church and as individuals and how it's kind of changing the playing field. What did you find or what do you find in your own life, the role that social media and the Internet and everything plays in us feeling alienated from other people? I think one of the really weird and sometimes dangerous things about social media is that because it has another degree of removal from reality, (laughs) it's easier for people to posture themselves in the way that they want to be postured. And as we enter into social media, we see a world in which everyone seems so well postured to have the kind of life that we wish we had (laughs) or we think that we should have if we were to really fit into the world. Um, and so because of that extra degree of removal, you know, I think people posture in real life, too, um, but not everybody is a good enough actor to constantly posture themselves all the time. And we can often see the cracks of their posturing. We begin to recognize, you know, this person may put on a good show, but I think they're actually as insecure as I am, if not more so. <laughs> yes. But somehow on social media, we lose a bit of that insight because all we see is the snapshot, the singular photo, the singular sentence that somebody wants us to see. That's right. And I think that artificiality gives all the more context in which for us to feel like Everybody else seems to be in on something, and I might pretend to be in on it too, but I know for myself that deep down, this is not actually true of the way I experience the world. Yeah, that's so good. Such a big thing right now in, in, in our culture. Uh, so I don't want to give too much of your book away, but how would you describe the answer or the main thesis uh, of your book, No Longer Strangers? I'm always cautious of claiming to have too much of an answer to anything. <laughs> but I, but I think in, insofar as, as there is a thesis of the book, I think it is something like this. We do indeed give up a sense of belonging in order to follow Jesus. There are ways in which when we say, yeah, I want to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, not only do we inherit the, the sense of alienation that we would have gotten regardless, but there are ways in which we actually choose to be alienated. We take things that look like the obvious pathways to our own happiness, to our own belonging, and we say, I'm going to give those things up because it's what I feel like, it's what I sense that the Lord is calling me to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet in the process of giving those things up, we actually discover that we we receive in return these gifts that are so much better than the kind of belonging we could have earned for ourselves. And so that actually weirdly and counterintuitively, the best possible way to belong in the world is to take this gamble where you give something up to follow Jesus. And what you get in return is so much better than anything you could have earned for yourself. 
Oh, man, that's really good. I hope people will go out and get the book. Uh, it is called No Longer Strangers, Finding Belonging in a World of Alienation. That author is Greg Coles. And Greg really kind of set the stage and gave the background of that book. You also wrote another book in 2017 entitled Single Gay Christian, A Personal Journey of Faith and Sexual Identity. And it was a super important book. Uh, and and I'm, I'm really just curious, not only... Um, why did you decide to write a book that was so personal? But were you surprised at all in good or bad ways by the reaction to that book, uh, Single Gay Christian? Yeah, well, I'll start with the the reasons for my writing it, which really the book was something of an accident. I did not sit down and think to myself, you know what I should do? You know, it would be really strategic. I should just write a book and then publish it. <laughs> what happened was I... I had been intending to work on a very different writing project okay. and got this horrendous writer's block along the way. And so I, I wrote my agent who was also serving as kind of my writing mentor. And I said to him, like, I've got this writer's block. What do I do? And he said, here's what you got to do, Coles. You sit down at your computer and you just write whatever comes out of you. And he said, no one ever has to see it. And I was like, this is sound. This is sound writerly advice. So, <laughs> I like so it. that's what I did. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I did is I, I sat down at my computer and I began to write the things that I felt like I was trying to process, the things that I felt like God was teaching me. And it was a season of my life when I was just beginning to ask the question, uh, hey, this is my experience of the world as somebody who's exclusively attracted to the same sex, as somebody who has studied uh, what that means for my life, has sort of investigated the question of whether I should try to become straight, who upon failing to become straight felt like, hey, maybe I should uh, see what the Bible really says about this. I'd gone through this whole season of wrestling and I would concluded, I think I'm called to, to be single and celibate for the rest of my life. Mm. And I was wrestling with the question of whether I should say that aloud ever to anyone the whole course of that journey or whether I should keep it to myself and just spend the rest of my life telling people, yeah, I just don't feel the Lord is calling me to marriage. Hmm. Uh, I wasn't sure what I should say or not say. And so I was, I was dealing with the angst of those questions and my wrestling through it uh, turned into an, a sort of an accidental memoir. Excellent. Uh, what's what I know now it's four going on four years, three and a half years ago since that book came out. My guess is writing something that personal uh, gets a ton of feedback, both good and bad, especially around a topic like this. That that is such a hot button issue. Uh, have you found the feedback and the, the overwhelming? Have you found it encouraging, uh, discouraging? How would you describe the result of this book in your life? I think on the whole, the feedback has been much more encouraging than I was originally braced for. Uh, I was, I was ready to become quite the pariah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and, and I would, I would hasten to say I, I did indeed become quite the pariah in some context, you know, mm. uh, in the months, especially the months right after the book came out. There were blogs and, and radio shows dedicated specifically to demonstrating what a heretic Gregory Coles is. Wow. Um, and, and it was, it was, a, a sort of challenge that I could have intellectually prepared for. And I did try to intellectually prepare for it, but there was a sense in which I was not at all emotionally prepared just because I don't, I don't think I had a category in my life for how to deal with 
So many people suddenly hating my guts. Mm. Well, so many more people suddenly thought I was this amazing, wonderful person. And I wanted to be like, no, no, you don't understand. I don't think I'm as much of a heretic as you think I am, but I'm also not nearly as cool as you think I am. (laughs) Um, I'm just kind of boring in the middle here. That's that's fascinating because you could I would guess that people either just cheered you on so loudly or just ripped you, like you said, and that's got to be just a weird spot to be. So circling back then to your to the new book that's coming out, No Longer Strangers, uh, how did the message of the first book and you kind of wrestling with sexual identity and what is God calling you and kind of where that puts you in the church and, and the evangelical world? How did that lead to alienation? I'm guessing these two books are very tied to each other. Oh, very much so. I think there were there were a couple dynamics for me, some of them personal and some of them more broadly sociocultural. Uh, one of the personal dynamics had to do with this this sudden influx of criticism and adulation that I was getting as a as a new author. Um, I, I realized that in my life up until that point, I had had a tendency to measure my sense of belonging in the world based on my reputation, based on how people felt about me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had been the sort of person who was fairly likable and it worked pretty well to just be like, yeah, if I'm wondering how my spiritual life is, I could just take a survey of the crowd and everyone would say, Greg's doing fine with the Lord. And and that felt fine to me. Um, but but in, in beginning to realize um, that if I leave my, if I leave the state of my spiritual life up for a survey, um, or if I decide whether or not I belong based on whether or not everybody likes me, uh, then the foundation that I'm setting myself on is actually a foundation laid in jello. Like it's a very unhealthy place to seek out belonging. That's good. Um, so that was one of the one of the personal lessons that I think drove me to write. Uh, but I think beyond that, uh, there were bigger questions that I felt like I was engaging. Uh, in in especially Christian culture around me, but also Western culture more broadly, questions about uh, what does it look like to be single in a world where both secular culture and Christian evangelical culture tends to highly prioritize and to praise certain expressions of romantic love and yeah. building a nuclear family and having children and so forth. What does it look like to intentionally claim a story that is none of those things? Yeah, yeah. So you're involved in the church. I'm a pastor. I'm involved in the church. Around this topic of alienation and belonging, what are some practical things that churches can just do better that you'd like to see churches and pastors improve on going forward? One thing that I think is so helpful, uh, not just for folks who are in my specific situation, folks who feel called to singleness because of maybe their experience of sexuality, but also for all people who are single for any reason, um, I think it's really helpful uh, to begin to intentionally honor the vocation of singleness, uh, mm. not to assume that marriage is the path to which everyone is called, uh, not to assume that marriage is the best or the only way in which we can express the first Corinthians 13 love of God to one another. Um, but I think to really begin to believe uh, in the way that the Apostle Paul articulates in, in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, to really begin to believe that there are particular gifts that come with the vocation of singleness um, and that the body of Christ actually needs those gifts. Mm-hmm. Um, I think to, to, be, to begin to purposefully honor uh, and to invite people to consider whether God might be calling them to singleness, not because they don't have better options, uh, 
um, but instead because the Lord might have something purposeful that he wants to do with them precisely in the midst of their singleness. That's good, man. Greg, you got so much good stuff here. Before we let you go, uh, where can people find more of your writings or social media, wherever? Let us know everywhere where people can find you. Let's see. You can find me at my website, which is gregcoles.com or gregorycoles.com. Whichever you prefer, they go to the same place. Nice. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I'm pretty bad at social media, but I am entertaining in the sense that I'm like one of those people who tries badly, like your grandmother, just sort of figuring <laughs> it out. So you can join me for the party there. Um, uh, and, and my website links to most of my, most of my other writings on, nice. or, through organizations like the Center for Face Sexuality and Gender, um, through organizations like Revoice. Um, yeah, those are some places. Describing your social media presence that way is enough for me to want to follow you. So I think you want to have that one. That's great. That's a great way to put it. Well, the new book is called No Longer Strangers, Finding Belonging in a World of Alienation. The author is Greg Coles. Greg, this has been a ton of fun. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, what a treat. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined by nobody today, just my listeners as I'm flying solo today. It's always a weird day. I enjoy talking. I'm a pastor and a radio host. So uh, if there's nothing else I can do, it's uh, it's a talk. Uh, but it is weird to kind of not have somebody else to bounce things off of and not be able to see your audience and just talk. I know there have been many a radio host who've done this really well over the years, whether it be uh, Rush Limbaugh on the political side or someone like Colin Cowherd on the sports side. But, man, it does take some getting used to, but it is enjoyable. Uh, but most of all, uh, it, we're glad to be joined by you, our listener. And we hope that you're not only enjoying the show, but having a great day, a good Monday as we look forward to a week of Hopefully more blue skies, more sun. It's March the 1st today. I, I'm feeling optimistic today. I said at the very beginning of the show, one reason I feel optimistic, spring training started yesterday and today. Uh, literally saw my beloved Mets playing today. And uh, I got to tell you what, that makes me that makes me really happy because baseball uh, is uh, is America's pastime. And it makes me um it just brings a smile to my face. We're kind of in the sports doldrums right now, being between um, the end of the football season and the beginning of baseball season. I know we have basketball right now, but for me, it's that, that time between football and, and baseball that's always a little bit like, ah, what do I want to watch? So baseball's coming, and, I, and I'm super excited for that. We just saw over the weekend, they said, uh, going to be fans at Wrigley and at guaranteed right field. Not many, you know, 10, 15%, but... Uh, going to be fans. And what's going to the secondary market of tickets going to be like? I can't wait to see what this looks like, because uh, if you've only got 10% of uh, the supply, but probably close to equal the demand, uh, Economics 101 tells me those prices are going to go through the roof. So I, I don't know how they're going to do that. Uh, but we shall see. But baseball is on the horizon. Well, one of the things we've been trying to do, especially since the pandemic, is to leave some good news or some inspiration or some challenge as we close out this show, kind of as we move uh, out into the rest of our days. Uh, and, and, and I want to do that on kind of a personal level today uh, by by talking about something we did at our church over the past three weeks, uh, over the past three weeks. Um, we have been joined, and I have to be somewhat uh, vague about this, but we were joined by a missionary couple uh, from a part of the world 
uh, that, quite frankly, uh, is very hostile to Christianity and is not safe. Uh, and they are back, uh, but they are getting ready to go back to where it is that they are, where it is that they minister. And, and they spent two weeks or three weeks with us where after church, uh, both in person and over Zoom, uh, they kind of shared their story and why they do what they do. And, and have you ever been around people that when you hear their story and their perspective, these people have kids, uh, you know, they're, they're my age, a little younger, that, that when you're around people uh, that you just are challenged by your faith where you're left going, man, and th- their, their faith has an element to it that I'm not sure my faith uh, in the Western church, in, in the comfortability of America, uh, especially uh, a place like the Western suburbs here of Chicago, like I'm not sure that I've had to stretch that muscle. And, and, and so to hear them talk about getting arrested or uh, their uh, idea of going into a place where there's like literally no Christians and, and, and dreaming about growing a team and growing a movement of house churches. And now they're seeing it happen. And yesterday, what I was really struck by as they shared uh, was um, their, uh, their strategy and their uh, intentionality. And I was really struck where they were like, these are the metrics we use. This is the exact system that we use to grow disciples. Here's the questions that we ask. Here's the strategy that we employ. And, and here's how we, uh, we can look at it and go, is it working or is it not? And I thought to myself, man, we don't in our churches in the West here really need to strategize, or we, maybe we do need to, but we don't tend to strategize in the same way that these missionaries do. And why isn't that? They take as their lifeblood the need to mentor and grow disciples. They talk about having a disciple-making movement. And they're seeing fruit. They're seeing families come to faith. They're seeing little house churches planted. And I found myself, again, so super encouraged, uh, so good thinking to myself, I'd love to go visit them sometime. So thinking about, man, like God is at work, but also going I'm not sure that we have the same attention, not intention, maybe intentionality uh, or maybe purpose uh, or maybe uh, just this idea that, man, we've got to get to work, this urgency. I'm not sure we have that. And so here's my question for us as I leave us. What would it look like for us as individuals, individual Christ followers, but then also as individual churches? What would it look like if we recaptured the urgency and the strategy and the purpose that many of our missionaries uh, in the much more dangerous parts of the world that they live with on a regular basis? This idea that God needs to work, uh, but that we can't just kind of flippantly go about it, that we're not part of a Christian nation, if you will. What would the result be in America uh, if we lived with an urgency like that, because it was so striking. I talked in our service yesterday about the fact that we are sent and, and talked a lot about that as God sent his son for us, Jesus then sends us into the world with this good news. And there was this, it was interesting to talk about that and then to listen to them and how they flesh that out in their, in their context. I, I was just to be honest with you, I was really challenged and I was convicted and it made me think to myself, uh, where's our urgency? What does it look like to live with urgency? What does it look like to live with strategy to where making other disciples is legitimately at the top of the list? I'm not sure uh, that that's how we need to live. 
And, and that saddens me. And here's the other thing or challenges me. And here's the other thing that I was left with. And I'll close with this because there's my encouragement. Listening to their story over the past three weeks reminded me again in a very, very uh, fresh and deep way uh, that God is at work around the world. Uh, that he is miraculously at work. They were telling stories yesterday of of Muslims having dreams about Jesus and coming to talk to them about it. God is at work in miraculous ways. And again, sometimes we can get so lost here in America with the various stories of of church abuse and power or just comfortability or of politics. And we can ask, yeah, does it really matter? What's God doing? And, and, and like we could become blase, almost like the church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation, kind of this lukewarm. And then you hear these stories and you go, God's at work, not just across the globe in these places, but God's at work here in the western suburbs of Chicago, in the city of Chicago, in Indiana, wherever it is that you're listening, God is still at work. And that needs to drive us to a couple different things. It needs to drive us to prayer, an urgency of prayer, that prayer matters. And it needs to drive us to share, to to live as sent ones urgently with strategy uh, and with a purpose and an urgency that says, this is my ultimate calling. I'm an ambassador of Christ, a sent one. I want to leave us with that because I, I'm convicted of that, but also encouraged and grateful that God is still at work. I thought we'd do something we've never done here on the show. Let me close us with a benediction. I read this at our church yesterday, uh, but I'd love to close us out of the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be uh, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Friends, we hope that you have a great night. I'm really glad that you joined us today. Join us again tomorrow from four until six. Until then, have a great night. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life.